Welcome to the Davidson Day Community Podcast. My name is Pete Moore, Head of School at Davidson Day. Each episode, you will meet different members of our supportive and diverse community. You'll hear fascinating stories from parents, board members, alumni, and the wonderful people who work at Davidson Day. In the latest episode of the Davidson Day School podcast, I'm speaking with Renee Brown. Renee is chair of the board of trustees at Davidson Day. Renee and her wife, Kelly, have a daughter, Sydney, who is a senior at Davidson Day. Renee is Senior Vice President of Marketing at Optum Care. She is also on the Board of Directors of the Carolinas Chapter of the American Red Cross and also on the Board of Directors of Out and Equal. Renee, thank you for giving up your time today to chat. Thank you, Pete. It's great to be here. So the first question I have is, where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Well, I grew up in South Louisiana, and my childhood was very much unlike my daughter's upbringing. So I was raised in a very rural part of the United States in Cajun country where food and dancing and music was all the rage. I was raised in the country with hippie parents. So how many siblings did you have? Did you have a lot of family growing up around you? We had a lot of extended family. So one thing as part of my upbringing, we had family reunions every year, and that involved Cajun bands, a lot of extended family. Our property south of Lafayette, Louisiana, is about 100 acres, and it's a really beautiful part of the country. And we would spend a lot of time with that extended family because everyone would come back to the country and to that kind of source of where the family started. But my immediate family is rather small. I have one sister two years older than myself, so pretty small immediate family, very large extended family. And I have a question that I'm embarrassed to ask. What does Cajun mean? I hear it and I think I have an idea, but if you were to ask me directly, I would get it incredibly wrong. So what does Cajun mean? Go to DNA. So Acadian is actually a classification of DNA. And so these are immigrants that started in Spain, Portugal, France, kind of in the middle of those countries, immigrated over to Canada, and they kicked us out of Canada because of religious discrimination. And so several of the groups of Acadians landed in Florida. So there's a part of Florida where there's a French-speaking people. Most of them moved all the way around into Louisiana. And so I was raised speaking both French and English with my grandparents. And it's a very different kind of French because what happened is as they left France, they would develop new words. And so Cajun French dialect is not appreciated by a lot of people because there are words that aren't technically French. They're they're sort of a hybrid. And so, yeah, so I, I know a little bit of French, but thank goodness Sydney is, has taken four years and she knows all the proper French, not the Cajun French. And so when people talk about Cajun food, what does that refer to? I've never been to Louisiana. Oh, we can fix that. Okay. Um, I, I'll, I'll get you into the fold in no time. So Cajun food is an interesting mix of Creole. Actually, there's a strong African influence in that, but it's the melting pot of all the people who wound up in South Louisiana. Spicy, but if you think of paella in -hmm. Spain, jambalaya in Louisiana is quite similar. And so you can see a lot of connections to those previous types of folks. And so, you know, Louisiana is very much being a, a waterfront. Many communities are waterfront. It's a melting pot. And so Cajun food is a mix of what you would find in a lot of cultures, but it's known for seafood and spices and Sometimes unusual things like the use of crawfish, which some people love and other people think it's kind of weird. Yeah, I can't wait to travel down there. And so you stayed in Louisiana to go to school. So, and why did you decide to study communications at LSU? 
Well, I was in radio for throughout high school and throughout graduate school, working as an announcer and a traffic reporter. And so I thought, well, hey, let me keep going and just go into journalism. And I'm so glad I did not land in journalism. I wound up not liking journalism, <laughs> lo and behold. And where journalism is today, you know, I'm happy that I took a different path. But that was just because I was following my sister's footsteps, being in radio. And, and so like with anything in life, you never know where you'll wind up. So that's why I started in communications, but found communication theory and things like mediation and that area of communications far more interesting than the journalism path. And you did your thesis, your master's thesis on couples, wasn't it? The communication between, what was that? The use of humor across marriage type was my thesis. And I thought that based on how traditional or progressive your marriage type would be, you might use humor differently. I found absolutely nothing to that effect in my <laughs> research. So that in and of itself was a good learning. What I really found was a difference in humor across genders in my study. It was a quantitative study. And so I don't know if you'll like this, Pete, but basically fellas think they're funnier than they are, and women actually are funnier and don't themselves as funny and that the trait of being using humor is actually a male trait to cause somebody to laugh is is seen as a male trait. Mm -hmm. And so women typically, you think about comedians from way back, they were typically pretty androgynous, mm -hmm. like Phyllis Diller, they would yeah. use colorful language, it was much more of a male stereotype. So my study became more of a gender study than, than what it, it was intended to be to begin with. But it was interesting. So I studied humor in college. I took college very seriously. Yes, that's funny. That's funny. There's a cool story of you getting into radio. It's something like you sounded like your sister or something? Yes. I was competing in a speech contest and recorded a speech at the radio station. And I left and my sister's boss walked in behind me and heard the tape and ran around and really basically asked my sister, why did you record that for your sister? That's really wrong. You weren't supposed to do that. And she's like, no, that's actually that's actually my sister. And, and he, he's like, all right, she's hired. When you go to college, we want to we want your sister to join. So just because I sound like somebody was how I got my first real job. That's awesome. And final question about this is, you were also, you talked about doing traffic, like you were up in the plane. Yes. What was that like? I have more stories than you have time for. <laughs> yes, it was great. Every morning and every afternoon, I would fly in an airplane around Baton Rouge and report traffic. And we saw 18-wheelers with cattle that had come out and went around into the community. And for weeks, I was actually a cattle spotter at one point in this. But the great thing about being a traffic reporter is I learned how to take a ton of information and condense it to 30 seconds, which is really hard. Some days we would have two interstates closed and it, you had to explain alternate routes and all of this to, to people traveling from out of town. Really tough, but it has helped me even in my what I do today, because if you can figure out how to make something more concise, people really appreciate it in our 140-character world we live in right now. All right. So then you were at LSU studying humor. And then what was your path from, L from then into banking? Because eventually yes. you end up in banking. I was wanting to get my PhD and actually be a, a college professor, but I ran out of money. And so like many college students, it's like, okay, I have the master's. Let me go find a job. Mm -hmm. And so I was searching high and low and everywhere. And having an MA and not an MBA is hard when you're looking for a role. I landed in banking by accident and in bank marketing by accident. What the situation was, uh, there's a bank in Lake Charles, the city that just got blown away by that 
hurricane recently, where the bank had a situation where they really needed a mediator more than a marketer because the president of the bank really hated their ad agency and they had gone through like five marketing managers in three years and they just needed somebody to kind of get in there and kind of keep the peace. And so they thought, hey, she studied mediation. Let's give it a go. Interesting. So I actually had to learn marketing from the ground up. And what was great is that I had all four Ps of marketing. So people in marketing, that means product pricing, promotion, and place or distribution, Mm -hmm. which that does doesn't happen today. Typically, marketing is is just promotion. And so it was a great learning for me because I had to, you know, create bank products. And I was just a kid out of college. All I knew how to do was like bounce a check like every kid. So it's like, what is a super now account? You know, that's something I did back. This was back in the 90s. So I just dated myself. But it was a great way to learn marketing. And I've been able to carry that more strategic view of marketing through all of my other jobs, which became more and more narrow, as you can imagine. And so then... Before we get into your career in, in leadership, you're now a deacon at Holy Covenant. Is mm-hmm. that right? Again, how did that come about? I think having a balance in life is an important thing. And so I had left church life after growing up in a lot of really odd church environments where there was a lot of, honestly, hatred that I heard growing up. And it's like, this isn't me. It didn't feel right. So I really left church for a long time. But when we were lucky enough to get pregnant, we decided we want to raise our child in a in a faith community because that's a great, well-rounded place to add a different perspective and, and a different viewpoint. And so so it was at the point where Sydney was coming along, coming into our lives that we found a church. And, and I like everything else, I have a problem saying no. And so they started asking, hey, you do long-range planning. Can you help us, you know, expand the church and help us with a capital campaign? And I was always like, yes, yes. And so, yes. So I've been a deacon at our church for a long time. It's really weird that we can't be together right now. You know, I haven't seen some folks in a long time, but, you know, we're continuing on virtually. But it's been a good experience to get back to faith And I call it faith, not religion, because it's a good reminder every Sunday to have somebody talk about and share stories of being a good person, because all of us face things that maybe people aren't being good to you, but that doesn't mean you necessarily have to match pace with them. Maybe maybe you have to be the example that they're needing in their lives. And so that's what that role in the hat that I wear helps me as a reminder every week to be good and and have some examples of that. Even though I don't live it every day, I try. (laughs) So the bulk of our conversation, I'd love to be about sort of women in leadership. And so the first question I have is, can you talk about the type of leadership roles that you've had and what leadership role you have at the moment? Great. Thank you. Yes. And and so like everyone else, everyone's career has a certain trajectory. And so I would say for the first seven years, I had pretty discreet roles where I was an individual contributor, not really leading teams. And it was actually after leaving on maternity leave, and a lot of people have asked that question, is, is that a negative to have a child? Does it harm your career? What happened for me is I returned and within a week, I was promoted to lead the team I was on, which is a great thing, great compliment. And that was the start of where it just took off, where I started with a small team and and in that situation, learning to manage peers, people who were once peers, has a lot of interesting 
dynamics, that's a good growth. But I eventually started leading larger and larger teams. And so I typically have teams of around 100, up to 200 employees. And I've worked with Fortune 5 companies, so very large companies where you have large matrix organizations. And my budgets have always been above 20 million, sometimes up above 100 million. So these are roles where you go from a place where you have a small team, small budget, but then as you prove that you can move the dial and get more successful, all of a sudden you're managing teams of teams and much more complex types of business arrangements. And so I've been very lucky that I have been able to continue to raise my hand with new challenges that pop up in these different companies and have been able to step into roles where I continually learn. So I probably every three to four years, I've moved into a different type of role where whether I'm taking off a marketing hat and, and standing up a social media technology platform, you know, that was a great like three year stint to do that and then move back into more of a traditional marketing role and that sort of thing. And, and also I've been able to move from financial services. Right now I'm in healthcare and my team now, I, I run a team of 80 across the U.S. and in the middle of a global pandemic, we're helping our 46,000 physicians continue to stay in touch with their patients and get the care that they need and move through what's going to be one of the most interesting flu seasons that we've had to date. Switching from a financial background of 25 years to healthcare was a great learning experience, and I'm continuing to learn every day. So as we talk about leadership, some of the things I wrote down is learning, listening, and then life management will be three things that I'll probably want to talk about because I think you have to be a, a lifelong learner if you're going to continue to lead people because you have to stay fresh and, and be excited about what you're learning. Listening is only good leaders really know how to listen. And that means listening deeply, listening to things you don't want to hear, listening when somebody tells you you're wrong, and actually being able to be big enough and kind of say, well, tell me more about that. And then the last one was around life management. And we'll get to that as we talk about time, because I think that's an area where, particularly for female leaders, how you manage your life is more complicated than I think some men face. Can you think back to your first leadership role? What was one of the main challenges that you faced? Or what were some of the challenges you faced? Yeah, you know, the first leadership role I mentioned was leading the brand at Wachovia, which was a financial institution here in, in North Carolina. And that was where I was promoted to, to begin managing people who were once my peers. And that was the first challenge with it, is to redesign a relationship that's based on respect, but also they report to you now. So that means you need to have a little bit of a, of a different relationship. So how do you do that without breaking it? It's one of those things where you can push hard and actually break a relationship to where it becomes a negative. So that was my first learning, and I've had this happen many times since. So it's been a good a, a good learning for me. But in that role, some of the issues that I really struggled with, the first was around facts versus opinion. So when you're in a role, you always have to have a grasp of the facts, but there's also a lot of opinion and subjectivity that comes into leadership, whether that's related to reports that you have. People may or may not agree with the data, believe it or not, <laughs> on any, any given day. And so that was an interesting, because I, I, as I was growing up, I was very much a black and white person growing up. I'm pretty much a process-oriented 
right-handed, left-thinking type of person. And so I figured a fact would always win. That's indeed not the case in corporate America. In fact, things can be exactly right and exactly wrong at the same time. And you as a leader have to figure out how to kind of hold both of those and manage your team through a situation. And so that was a big learning because in that role, I had a lot of subjectivity. You know, when you're talking brand management, you're talking about things like logos and advertising and diversity marketing and brand architecture. And a lot of people in an organization feel that soft and they're experts in it. And so that was the hardest thing for me to to kind of uh, be able to use the right facts and information to guide and, and keep things moving without you know, everyone weighing in and, you know, the analogy people often use is, is a camel is a racehorse built by committee. You don't want a brand that turns into that, you know, you need to have a real clarity about what's at your core and not let it get muffled and, and messed up by a committee poking at it. How did you go about learning how to be a leader? You know, that's, that's a great question. I think it started at a young age. I mean, I started whether I was the captain of the basketball team or, president of the student council i always wanted to 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 lead the team because it because i love kind of figuring out how to hear what everyone has to say and then figure out where we have a theme in common and keep the team moving forward that's always been a, a joy of mine and honestly my leadership style is probably i make it harder on myself because i go about trying to understand everybody and actually get to know them and find things that i care about in them even if i have somebody that i disagree with i can find something that I really love about them. Yeah. And that's what I focus on and, and focus on growing. And so my leadership style is is very much, it's dangerous in that in corporate America, so often we're asked to cut. And so if you've gotten to where you just love somebody and it just, you have to eliminate their position, you've built a relationship, it makes it a lot harder. But I find it's the only way to do it. Because mm-hmm. if you have to have a hard conversation, whether it's coaching somebody up or letting someone go, if you know them, you can have empathy and do it in a way that no one else so where did I learn that? I learned any kind of leadership, I think, through trial and error, through examples of when I was younger, having led teams. Actually, there's a lot that parlays into what you do as an adult. But in a lot of cases, it was making mistakes, Pete, and learning from them. And so I was interviewing some folks today for a role, and I always ask people two questions. Tell me the thing you're most proud of, because that really illuminates kind of at what level somebody plays, mm-hmm. what example they nice. say of what they're most proud of. If it's very tactical, it it's interesting versus more strategic. It just gets to people's mindset. But then the next question sometimes stops people in their tracks. It's like, okay, so tell me about your biggest failure and what you learned from it. And if somebody cannot answer that question, I don't hire them because that means they haven't reflected Mm -hmm. or they can't admit that they've failed. And all of us have, I mean, every given day I do something where I'm like, ooh, that wasn't very good. I need to, of course, correct that, you know? If you yeah. think about it, it's it's all about, I think people are more inspired by positive reinforcement oh, versus yeah. negative. And if you can find what's great that somebody somebody does something great, highlight it, focus on it, blow it up, and you can just see them bloom. Now, I've seen the opposite happen oh, where yeah. somebody focuses on something negative and it puts somebody into a spiral. And then even things they're good at, they can't even do very well mm-hmm. because they all get in their head, right? Yeah. And so I see it in corporate America. You see it on the ball fields. I'm just a positive reinforcement person. And of course, I mean, you also have to have tough conversations, yeah. but you can do it in a way that that's very caring. Yeah. To give somebody feedback is a very 
very, it's a gift. In order for it to land, you have to make sure they feel respected and you come, come meet them where they are. And I think if you can do that, you can deliver any message to somebody and they might actually hear in a way that they maybe haven't in the past. Because most people know their flaws or shortcomings and they've probably gotten feedback, but to help somebody make a change is a whole different thing. Yeah, it's one thing to just stop them doing something that's others that it, it, because others are watching as others. It's a whole different thing if they're going to do that on their own. So moving a little bit more into sort of women and leadership, I have some stats here. It says, according to Nicholas College's Institute for Women's Leadership in the U.S., women earn more earn more bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees in the U.S. than men. Despite that, globally, women hold just 24% of senior leadership positions in the the U.S. lags behind the global average at 21%. Also, women represent 45% of S&P 500 workforce, but only 4% of CEOs. Why do you believe women hold such a small number of senior leadership positions? I would say two things. The first one might not be a popular thing to say, but I will share this. I feel that women oftentimes with the roles that they have in a home life and the roles at work sometimes are at counter purposes related mm-hmm. to what I call ramping up. So let's say you are promoted and you're a female leader and let's say you have two small children. You also probably have seen the stats that women in a in a typical household pick up the majority, oh, two-thirds yeah. of the chores, right? Yeah. Whether and, they're working or not. Exactly. And so what happens in, in corporate America is to get to these promotions, you have to be in the right place at the right time. That often means you're at the bar at 7 o'clock at night with the guys. Do you see where this yeah. is going? You have to be like, I was half-time in San Francisco but lived in Charlotte. I was, you know— Half half of my life was not at home mm-hmm. because I had a wife who stayed home full time and helped that happen. So the women that I've seen do really well have a spouse, whether that's male, female, whatnot, that can stay at home and care for the child or the children. And that's that is a life choice that that is really difficult for a lot of folks. So I missed a lot of Sydney's upbringing. I missed a lot of celebrations and things like that. But it was a choice our family had made. But that ability to ramp up. So in every new role I've taken, I'm probably just absent for six months where Mm -hmm. I'm trying to learn something new, maybe taking exams, doing things, you know, you're just working constantly. You're probably experiencing that right now, Pete. But that's what you you have to have a supportive family around you. Mm -hmm. And I think in so many cases, women just can't do it all. And I think that's one That's one reason. Now They can't do it because they don't have the support? That they don't have the ability to ramp up and put the time into mm-hmm. it because they're the main caregiver for, for children and the family and the family unit and all the stuff that goes along with it, mm-hmm. pick it up, dry cleaning, yeah. you know, the whole nine yards. And so I think it needs to be an intentional type of thing for, for any sort of family is to talk about, you know, because basically if one person is taking off, that other person might need to back off yeah. of their career. So that can be a really tough item. So so that's that's the first thing I would mention is, is just that ramp up factor. And you can't always be ramped up is the other thing I would name. It should be at the start of a job for a period of time, mm-hmm. and then it should back off so yeah. that you do have some semblance of work-life balance. But if your career continues going, you're going to have other ramp ups coming up. So you better be ready that it's going to happen again and and negotiate it as such. But the other thing is that bias is real. 
And I'll tell you, bias comes in a lot of different forms. I think one thing we could teach our young ladies here at Davidson Day is in how they present and and their presence. And so through the 80s, the Valley Girl kind of language style harmed a lot of women because there's a style of speaking that women have picked up that has continued. And what I call it is hedging or always asking a question. You know, they never make a statement. It's always that question. And so I was very lucky to have an English teacher as a mom, and she was always watching the tonality for me and my sister and very much kind of put it in our heads that how you show up, you need to have a definitive statement. Mm -hmm. Make a statement. Don't ask a question. Don't hedge. Don't say maybe, kind of, should have. You know what you're talking about. Don't don't hedge all the time. And I see a lot of ladies give up their power. Mm. And a lot of it is trained and it's like a gender norm almost to be a lot more timid in your in in style and I think we could help that at Davidson Day but that's not all of it that isn't all of it there also is a, an in club and an out club in every organization and you know it is easier for the guys to go play golf and for decisions to be made in the men's room and I, actually I've seen some situations where decisions were made in the women's room when all women are leaders it it kind of happens but there is still bias in our system but there are ways for us to prepare women to manage that and to show up in the best possible way. So going back to your first point, you're in a situation where you're ramping up. So I'm in a ramp up situation at the moment. I'm very lucky I have a partner who's incredibly supportive. And when I first took this job, she said, all right, we're not seeing you for six months. And it's true. Like I am lucky in the sense that I get to see my girls at my workplace, which actually mitigates a lot of things, a lot of the, a lot of the issues, because I I see them at drop-off, I see them at pick-up, like I'm, I'm sort of involved in, in that t- sort of way. So we both have daughters, we're preparing them for the workplace, we want them to achieve all of their dreams. How do they manage that? They're in a relationship, it's their time to ramp up and it could be seen as that's not their role typically as a woman. How do we help them have those conversations or just believe in themselves, no, it's okay for you to ramp up? Yeah, you know, I think um, showing examples of great female leaders and and making sure that they see those, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's the uh, Citigroup just announced the first female running one of the largest financial institutions. And so that's an example of awesome. where we should probably look into her background. And, or, you know, that's just the most recent example of mm-hmm. something that happened this past week, which was really cool, yeah. where somebody is in a whole new echelon. But I, I think showing examples and real examples here at the school, we mm-hmm. have um, tons of female leaders that I think could be wonderful role models. And the other thing is I've always throughout my career, I've always felt that I had to be more prepared than everybody else and more ready for whatever meeting or whatever situation than everyone else. It's just how I've approached life. And not every day, but, you know, in key things, I, I w- would double and triple down. And I think that's in it, that can be a strong advantage mm-hmm. for women or other minorities mm-hmm. or, you know, women of color, because you do have this sense, I need to be so much better than everyone else in that room and so much more prepared. And that's not a bad thing, but just, you know, want to name that because that's a part of what you see where you'll go into a room and, and you'll notice the women are all buttoned up, ready to go. And then oftentimes some of our male colleagues come in and you can tell they, they hadn't put a, yeah. a moment's thought into whatever the, the issue is, that kind of thing. So not to pick on guys. But I think acknowledging that for our young ladies and saying, hey, sometimes you're going to have to work harder to get your voice. But once you have your voice and, and you're respected as an equal, then you're at the table. And then you can kind of relax and, and be normal. 
But there, there is a hurdle that I think women feel in particular to become respected and yeah. be seen as an equal. Because, you know, there, there is a reality. Some companies, they say, oh, that's just a diversity hire. And, you know, there's nothing that makes me crazier than that. Yeah. Because, you know, typically somebody has the credentials and is ready to go. And then they just have to prove themselves. How do we help our young women... I guess get that. So it's working hard. It is sort of that, that. I love what you said about the intonation. And what other things can women do? Yeah, I mean, I think strongly, whether it's an adult or a growing child, that people become what we tell them they're going to become. If we tell them nice. that they're amazing, they actually show up that way when they're yeah. around you. And so you see it with kids with a spark in their eye when they start doing something great and you start sharing how wonderful that was. You see it with, yeah. with younger kids in particular. As they get older, they get more cynical, of course. But you know, encouraging professions that maybe are not gender standard yeah. professions would be one and, and showing that to them so that there are real live examples for people to latch on to. But also I'd say let's watch the gender expectations starting in our pre-K. Because we put a lot of stuff in the pink category that we don't put in the blue category and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying this both for the boys and the girls. Yeah. There's a lot of things around gender expectations that make being a young lady, meek, quiet, certain kind of you know aspects that aren't necessarily what you hear in a corporate boardroom. And so being outspoken and clear and forceful is not a bad thing for a young lady particularly if they're right and they're trying to help somebody. And so I think it would be great to have a neutral party kind of look at, do we have stereotypical things happening that we don't even realize because it's just part of our culture? But then being intentional around how do we, you know, are there different offerings we, we provide to our women around public speaking mm -hmm. or other areas that we think could be could be helpful and give them a leg up, whether that's in the college admissions process or yeah. later when they're in a corporate role or opening their own business, whatever the case may be. I'm always looking for awesome quotes about sort of, about sort of women in leadership. And this is one of my favorites. There's a lady named Cindy Eckhart, and she's the CEO of Sprout Pharmaceuticals. She said, we're constantly in the discussion around women talking about needing a voice. What really changes is when women have power. The power that comes with money is to sit on the other side of the table and make decisions. And she said, 2% of VC funding goes to women, 2%. The question is, what do you feel we could do to help our young girls move beyond asking for a voice and seeking power to make positive changes? I think we could really do something neat here at Davidson Day around starting a business and what does it take to start a business yeah. and really train up all of our students on what it takes to do that because it's a skill that whether you actually are an entrepreneur later in life or not, you always will have to do a business plan for something at some point, I'm sure. And so I think that could be a positive in the lines of venture capital funding because it's true. You see amazingly successful female-owned businesses. In fact, a lot of the stats show that female-owned businesses are more successful because they they started with a lot more clarity around what is it that we're going to be different around? Mm -hmm. What are we going to own? And I think women have a natural knack for that. So I would love to see us do something yeah. around planting the seeds of a business thinker for all of our students, and the girls in particular would benefit from it, I think. In the book, Out and Equal at Work, From Closet to Corner Office, you said, I feel my role as a high-performing leader, a mum, a long-term partner, and a lesbian has been to 
bridge similarities and differences daily with straight and LGBT colleagues. What do you believe are the best ways to bridge similarities and differences in the workplace and beyond? You know, having opportunities and and taking hold of teaching moments has been a consistent for me. And so because I was pretty out and outspoken at my couple of companies ago at Wells Fargo, I had a lot of people come to me and ask questions. And so some of the questions were not easy ones, things related to differences related to religion. It's something that typically people would would steer away from, but I'm happy to buy a cup of coffee and I know... I know a lot about that space and have a dialogue, not that anybody would change their mind necessarily about maybe things that they've been taught and that that kind of thing, but actually to take the time to sit and, and have a dialogue where I respect your point of view, I'm sharing mine, we might not agree at the end of the day, but this person now knows somebody who's in a different category and doesn't hate them. Mm-hmm. And so what often happens, and particularly in this day and age, people will line up and put somebody in a category where they're good or bad. And it's not the case of whether it's good or bad, it's like they're different. And let me help to understand that difference. And so to me, I was the only LGBT person some of these executives knew. And so I took that as an opportunity to show as much as I can that, you know, in the process of raising a family, everything we go through are the same things that any family goes through. It's not different to have a family. Everyone encounters similar things. It's just that the family unit looks different and behaves differently and at the time had different legal rights. Thank goodness that's a little bit different now. So it was more of an even playing field for those families. But, you know, I, anytime there was a teachable moment, I, tried to take it and and have that dialogue. And so because every time you can share a different perspective or an experience that you've had that somebody else inevitably wouldn't have because they're in the privileged group, it's a moment. And so, you know, I've taken many of those and very few of them have landed flat. So that's good. Moving on to our rapid-fire questions. What is the book or books you most frequently recommend to others? In my work life, the book, The First 90 Days, which I know I talked with you about when you were joining, I have a Cliff Notes version of it just because it has come in handy every time I am in a new role. That is a book I, I look at again to remind about all the different ways that things can pop up in a new role because those first 90 days are so critical. The other one is Crucial Conversations. Mm-hmm. Anyone who hasn't read that, that's a that's a super important one and how to, how to approach because there are crucial conversations that you have with your family, with work situations situations with your children when that question comes up that you weren't ready for, but you got to go with it. And, you know, how do you get into and create a safe space with conversations that basically change the trajectory of that relationship, that product, that whatever, whatever the case may be. So those are two. What are some of the things you love to do in your free time? I love staying in shape. So I love running, cycling, rowing, that sort of thing. To counterbalance that, I love cooking. And you got to have a little bit of balance on both sides. And I love water sports. So I still get out and water ski. And so I hope to still be doing that when I'm in my 70s. That's my goal. When did you learn to water ski? I was very young. I was uh, probably seven the first time I skied. And it was in a swamp with alligators. And I'm not kidding. That's inspiration (laughs) to get out of the water. (laughs) Funny. Not many people can say that. Like it's some pristine lake or river or something. Not pristine, yeah. That's funny. If you could learn a new skill, what would it be and why? 
languages. Um, so I knew French growing up. I made the mistake of learning Spanish in college, and now I get them confused. In the last five years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? New behavior, I have really cut carbs out of my diet, and that sounds kind of shallow, but it it really makes me feel better. I love French fries and pasta and rice and things like that, but having it not has been putting me back in charge, and, and I feel much better every day. So that's been a, a good move for me. So Those type of changes, dietary changes, are tremendously difficult. How did you start that process? I did cold turkey for a week and then mm-hmm. just added back in, you know, fruits, vegetables kind of thing. And But I've kept starches out mm-hmm. for the most part, except for, you know, holidays, birthdays. Yeah. I'll have a piece of cake, but then I just go back to, yeah. to being good. So I don't deprive myself. But the days that I just enjoy, have a burger and fries, the next day I just feel awful when I'm running. So it just, you know, our bodies aren't meant for all of all of that. So, What advice would you give someone wanting to pursue a career similar to yours? Digital and data. If someone were wanting to go and and say, I want a marketing track, understand how data plays into it and how that's delivered digitally. Because everything in our world today starts with data, ends with data. Understanding how to really use data and the science behind data is totally critical for somebody in in our space now. And it it wasn't just five years ago. Great advice. And last one, what inspires you? I am inspired, and this might sound a little hokey, but the next generation of kids, like you were saying, sitting down with the class you sat down with today, they have a different view of the world that is unencumbered by assumptions and the differences that we were raised with. And I think this next generation, the kids who are graduating now and and who are going to come up after them, are going to change fundamentally how workplaces are, are put together, how products go to market, and how products and services are used by consumers. I mean, I think we're at a a rapid innovation stage with these kids. And it inspires me because I, I see them working together differently, working together so productively versus like people my age or or the, the generations before us. So I have, I'm inspired by our kids. Thank you so much for your time today. Absolutely. Thank you, Pete. You've been listening to the Davidson Day School Community Podcast, which is hosted by Pete Moore, head of school at Davidson Day. The podcast is recorded on campus in the heart of the Lake Norman area. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear them. Email your thoughts to podcasts at davidsonday.org. That's podcasts at davidsonday.org.